Esther chapter 3, and uh, we'll be looking at an evil man who challenges God. An evil man challenges God. Now, if you're visiting with us today, we welcome you again, and we're thankful that you're here. But uh, we've been going through uh, three great books of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, and now the book of Esther. Esther is a uh, kind of an interesting book in the sense that it never does mention the name of God, uh, doesn't really mention prayer, uh, and people have wondered why God put it in the Bible. Well, I'm not going to question God. God put it there for a reason, and I think we've found some of those reasons already in our study thus far. So we're up to Esther chapter 3, and uh, here in Esther 3, we have a situation that has been characteristic of the life of the Jews almost from the time of their existence to the present. Uh, when you read this chapter, you very well could substitute in the word, uh, the name Pharaoh or even Hitler or the leader of Iran or many other leaders of nations instead of the name Haman. Uh, there's never been a time since Jews became a nation down in the land of Egypt to the very present moment that there's not been a movement somewhere on this earth to uh, uh, exterminate them. There is a hatred for the Jewish people uh, in our world, and we still see it today. But you remember that the theme of the book of Esther is the providence of God, and again, we'll see it at work in this particular chapter. Notice, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, as we read in our scripture reading there, Haman's hatred. Haman's hatred. Uh, Haman is the real villain of this book. Uh, he's the bad guy. Uh, he has uh, a bitterness and a hatred in his heart. Uh, he's identified as an Agagite, and there is something very interesting about this. Back in the book of Numbers and chapter 24, you remember a man by the name of Balaam. Balaam the prophet who reluctantly blessed the people of God, and he also was the same one who pronounced a curse uh, uh, on God, uh, or on the God of, uh, on the Amalekites, uh, and their king, whose name was Agag. And so that's where the Agagites come from, King Agag. Uh, makes you gag to say it. But anyway, First Samuel, you'll find Samuel told Saul that he was to eliminate the Amalekites. They were also known as the Agite. Agaiites. And remember that the disobedience of King Saul, uh, he did not do it. He didn't do it what God had told him to do. And if Saul had done what God had commanded him to do, his people would have not been in the situation because the Agaiites would have uh, long before disappeared. And God could see down through history what was coming. You see, God is in control. God knows what's going to happen uh, tomorrow. Uh, God knows what's going to happen down uh, down the road. And Saul's failure to eliminate these people almost led to the destruction of his own people. But again, God is behind the scenes. God is keeping watch over them. Evidently, hatred for the Jews was widespread throughout the entire kingdom of Persia. Haman uh, uh, was uh, going to precipitate it. Uh, even through one man, and that was Mordecai. Now, Haman, apparently a very wealthy man, was prompted to uh, place uh, next to the king Ahasuerus. Uh, he was he was promoted to a place next to the king Ahasuerus, and you will could say that he was even given a blank check 
signed by the king. He could do anything he wanted. He could have anything he wanted. And one of the things that was required of the officials of the kingdom were was to recognize him for the position that he had and to do obeisance to him. That was uh, to bow down before him. And the practical application for this, uh, for you and I today, is this. Because of our pride many times and the view of ourselves, we began to despise or become very critical of someone else. Uh, we may even come to hate the person because they are not like us. Or they have done something that we don't think is right. Perhaps like Haman, we think that they've gained a position they don't deserve. Uh, there is... This is where the root of bitterness begins to take hold and develop into an attitude that is not uh, uh, that is not godly. Now we expect that from the ungodly unbelievers, the unsaved people. But you know what? The problem is that we see it in Christians too many times today as well. Romans chapter twelve and verse three says, "For I say through the grace that is given unto me to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith." And so we see Haman's hatred. Secondly, we see Haman's problem. Now this is seen here in verses four through six. Now we've already seen that Mordecai is a judge at the gate. He has a political job, which means he is one of the officials of the kingdom and he must bow uh, down to Haman. Well, here we see for the first time the hand of God beginning to move in the life of Mordecai. Now, one might ask, well, but wasn't he out of the will of God? We talked about that a little bit last Sunday. Wasn't he out of the will of God? How can God move in a case like that? How can God move in uh, in a person's life who's out of his will? Shouldn't he have returned to his own land? Well, yes, probably he should have. And for reasons of his own, he did not return. And being a Jew, his place was back in Palestine. It is clear that he was out of the will of God, but I think he was still recognizing God. How do I know that? Well, God's law to the Jews is very clear. They were not to bow to anything but God himself. They were not to make an image or to bow to an image. They were not to bow down to anything or anyone. And so when this man Haman comes by after his promotion, well, everybody who has a political job is to go down to their faces before him. And they all do that except one man, Mordecai. Now, I believe it was very obvious when he didn't bow and it was, uh, he was the only one left standing. And they ask him why he doesn't bow, and for the first time now he reveals that he is a Jew. Now up to this time he has told no no one. And you remember that he also instructed Esther, when she came to the king's palace, not to let anyone know uh, about her race. And even her husband the king did not know it. But now Mordecai has to kind of let the cat out of the bag. And he has to tell them. But you notice that the minute he tells them that he is a Jew, he is telling also his religion. He worships the only true and living God. He bows down to no idol, to no image, to no man. It almost makes you want to say, Amen, Hallelujah, way to go, Mordecai. 
Now, even though we know that he was out of the will of God, he wasn't doing what God wanted him to do, at least we find he was true to what uh, he believed here in the sense of worshiping only God. He's beginning now for the first time to take a stand for God. And he's going to, it's going to cost him. I don't think he realized how far re- reaching it would uh, be as to touch all of his people. He thought, well, maybe it's going to affect me and a few people around me, but he doesn't realize it's going to cost him and reach all of his people. He does re- recognize it's going to cost him and maybe his life. Now, as Mordecai is beginning to stand out as a man of God, this man Haman begins to stand out as the ugliness, in his ugliness, as a man of Satan. The first thing we notice is his littleness. We're going to see this all the way through. Haman is a little man. You'll hear him later uh, crying on his wife's shoulder. He'll say something like, you know, I've got everything in the world I want. I can have anything in the kingdom, but this little Jew won't bow down to me. And so he's whining about, he'll whine about that. And it's a small man who will let that sort of thing bother him, and he's permitting it to disturb him a great deal. So then we come to Haman's solution in verses 7 through 14. Now we're going to see the steps here that wicked Haman took as he executed the plan to destroy the Jewish people. Haman did not know anything about the promise that God had made to Abraham. Go over to, if you see there, Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, it says, And I will make thee a great nation, I will bless thee and make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curseth thee, and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Haman didn't know anything about that. He was a pagan, and he didn't know anything about what God had promised to Abraham and to the Jewish people. But that's what God had done. Whether we like it or not, all we have to do is look back in history, and we'll find that every great nation has persecuted these people and tried to exterminate them. And yet the Jew has attended the funeral of every one of these great nations. Hitler tried to exterminate them in the ovens in the camps of the Gestapo. Uh, He thought he could get rid of them, and yet today Hitler and his group, they're gone. But the Jew is still with us. Uh, It's not likely uh, that either uh, Hitler or Haman or any of those today that hate the Jews realize or pay much attention to Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17, where it says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. You know, today, the Iranians, you know, and even some Americans, I'm sorry to say that some Americans hate the Jew. They want to destroy them. They don't care if they even exist on this, this planet. But you know what? They did, they'd better read Isaiah 54 and verse 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shall thou, thou condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Now, who am I going to believe? The Bible or the government? Or the governments of this world? God says that he's going to take care of his people. And they will not be destroyed, and that is what we see here in Esther. 
Now, as we look at these steps that Haman took, uh, uh, we notice, first of all, he selected a day. Verse 7. In verse 7 it says, In the first month, that is the month of Nisan, is the twelfth, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast pure, that is the lot, before Haman from day to day and from month to month to the twelfth month, that is the month Adar. Haman had, and in some of his court astrologers, would cast lots to determine the day for the Jews' destruction. Now this was done privately before Haman approached the king with his plan. Haman wanted to be sure that his gods were with him and that his plan would succeed. And I think it's interesting that as they went about determining the day for the destruction of the Jews, they cast lots and they left it up to chance. Now, we know, really, that it was left up to the providence of God. Proverbs 16 and verse 33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but the whole dispersing thereof is of the Lord. It's also interesting that they cast the lot in the first month. They arrived at a destruction date at the twelfth month, giving them an entire year to pass by before it would take place. You know, Haman you'd think one would want to act immediately. Why didn't he just, you know, come up with a day right away and catch the Jews off guard and satisfy his hatred much sooner? No. Comes up with a day that's 12 months away. This gives him, though, a, a year to kind of nurse his grudge, anticipate his revenge. And sometimes wicked people really get a, a real kick out of that. So he selected the day. Secondly, he requested the king's permission. This is in verses 8 through 11. And and like Satan, the great enemy of the Jews, Haman was both a murderer and a liar. To begin with, he didn't even give the king the name of the people who were supposed to be subverting the kingdom. His vague description of the situation made the uh, danger even worse. The fact that these dangerous people were scattered about throughout the whole empire made it even more necessary for the king to do something. You know, Haman was really building this thing. These people are dangerous. Now, he was correct when he described the people as having laws that were diverse or different from all people. Their laws were different because they were God's chosen people who received God's laws from his own hand given to Moses. And we have laws and precepts that may be different from our nation's laws. But that does not mean we don't keep our government's laws unless they're contrary to God's laws. For example, if we became, if it became a law that we must accept homosexual marriages, and I as your pastor must marry homosexual couples, then we would say that is completely contrary to God's law, would we not? That is contrary to the word of God. We would, at least I would, not obey such a law. Would there be consequences? Well, most certainly would be. You know, we've read in our... uh, Sunday school, adult Sunday school, we've read this day in Baptist history, and we've read already how Baptist preachers in the early days of our nation were forbidden to preach. And Baptist people were forbidden to meet together, to hear the preaching of God's Word. But you know what? They did it anyway. 
What were the consequences? Well, preachers were fined, and if they didn't pay the fine, they were put into jail. And we know that that did not stop them from preaching, for many of them preached from their jail cells as well, right out the jail window, and people would gather around and still hear the preaching of God's word. You know, it could be that that's where our nation is headed, with all the, uh, the thinking against Christianity. It may become, a, a, at some point, against the law to have a church service like we have this morning. Could very well happen. It's happened before. It could happen again. Well, after being offered a huge amount of money... This seems to be the thing that motivates politicians in our, even in our day, right? The king gives Haman his royal signet ring and grants him the authority to act in his name. Now it was a foolish thing for King Ahasuerus to do, but then he is an ungodly king and he is not operating on God's principles. And so he acts in haste and he would later regret this. Proverbs 18 and verse 13 says, He that answereth a matter before he heareth it, it is folly and shame unto him. And we need to be careful in this as well in our own lives. And so he requested the king's permission, but then he immediately spread the word. In verses 12 through 14, the king's permission was all that Haman needed, and so he got busy writing a new law, translating it into various languages of the people who were in the empire. And uh, the official document was then given to the royal cour- couriers, and they quickly carried it to every part of the empire. Now think about that for a moment. If a message of bad news was so quickly prepared and translated and distributed in an ancient kingdom, why does it take us so long to disseminate the good news of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ? Yes, I know there are more people in our modern world than there were in King Ahasuerus' empire, but you know we also have better means of communication we have better transportation today. The message is ready to go. But we don't have enough people to carry it and enough money to send them. Luke 10.2 says, Therefore said he unto them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. We need to get the message of the good news to the world today. Well, Haman got the message of bad news to the whole empire. And he did it very quickly. And Haman was getting his way. A law was written. It was sealed and doomed the Jews. And it was sealed since uh, with the king's signet. And uh, uh, it was sealed and it was made a law of the Medes and the Persians. Now, when it's made a law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be altered, cannot be changed. Haman's plan was working. And so number four, we see Haman's apathy. Look at verse 15 again. It says, The post went out, being hastened by the king's commandment, and the decree was given in Shushan the palace, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city Shushan was perplexed. Haman sends out the death warrants for the thousands of innocent people, and he sits down to a banquet with the king. What a calloused heart. Haman had. 
He was like the people the prophet Amos described in Amos 6 and verse 6, that drink wine in bowls and anoint themselves with the chief ointments, but they are not grieved for the affliction of Joseph. And yet in the end, it was his own death warrant that Haman had sealed, for within less than three months, Haman would be a dead man. It was Helen Keller who said, Science may have found a cure for the most, most evils, but it was found no remedy for the worst of them all, the apathy of human beings. You know, Jesus clearly illustrated the apathy, uh, this apathy in the parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. Remember, he pointed out there were two religious men, a priest and a Levite that ignored the needs of a dying man while the Samaritan, a hated outsider, sacrificed to care for him. And Jesus also made it clear that loving the Lord ought to make us love our neighbor. That is, anyone who needs to be loved. Do you know someone that needs to be loved? Maybe it's a family member, a neighbor, a co-worker. Maybe they need the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we ought to be doing what we can to tell them about the love of God. And so before we would condemn wicked Haman, we need to examine our own hearts. You know, there are billions of lost sinners in the world today. They're under the, the sentence of eternal death. And most Christians don't do much about it. We come to church every Sunday with out even thinking about helping to get the message out. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of just you? No. Just me? No. The world. The world. In June of 1865, a missionary to China, James Hudson Taylor, had gone to stay with some friends at Brighton, a popular British resort city in that area, or by the sea, he was weary and he was ill and he was seeking the will of God for his, the future of his ministry. And on Sunday, June the 25th, it said that he was unable to bear the sight of rejoicing multitudes in the house of God. And he went for a walk on the sands and he wrestled with God in agony of soul. And God met him in a fresh way and he trusted God to provide 24 workers to labor with him in China. Two days later, he went to the London and County Bank and opened an account in the name of China Inland Mission. It was the beginning of a miracle ministry. Now, you may wonder about that story when it says he was unable to bear the rejoicing multitudes in the house of God. What does that mean? You know, certainly it's good to rejoice in the Lord and to to come to church like we've done this morning and rejoice with our fellow believers, isn't it? That's a good thing. We may enjoy coming to church on a, an occasion like we will next Sunday. We'll have a fellowship meal together. We enjoy our fellowship together, but we won't share the message that brought us together in the first place. Are we sharing the message, the good news of the gospel, with other people? And this is what burdened James Hudson Taylor. You know, we don't have to be hardened unbelievers like Haman to be apathetic and unconcerned about the plight of the world's lost souls. In contrast to the happiness of the king and his prime minister, 
was the heaviness and the bewilderment of the people of Shushan, the Gentiles and Jews alike. It says in verse 15, the very last phrase there, but the city Shushan was perplexed. And the situation was not hopeless, for the providence of God was at work in two people, prepared and in place, Mordecai and Queen Esther. And so all over the land, this decree would go out. This hatred for the Jews is an awful thing, and it's still with us today. Anti-Semitism had its origin down in the brickyards of Egypt, under the cruel hands of Pharaoh, where the Jews became a nation. And from that time on, as I mentioned earlier, the great nations of the world have moved against these people. It was the story of Assyria. It was the story of Babylon that took them into captivity. We find it in Rome, and we find it in the Spanish Inquisition, and largely directed toward the Jew. We already mentioned Hitler of Germany, and it's still with us today. Anti-Semitism is the most apparent in the Western Europe, in the Muslim world. But even in the United States, long viewed as the world's safest nation for the Jew, we find anti-Semitism's resurgence. And it can be seen in the proliferation of the websites maintained by right-wing extremists, anti-Israel activists, in the rhetoric of our left-wing anti-globalization demonstrators on the streets of New York and Washington, many who would equate Israel with fascism. Why? Why? Why does this world hate the Jews so hard, so much? Two reasons. Two reasons. Number one is a natural reason. Has been said that they're not a lovely people. A Christian Jew once said, "My people have given cause for it. They are not. not they are so unlovely at times." But we must remember that a godless person, Jew or Gentile is unlovely. Any godless person without Christ is unlovely. God saw you and he saw me as unlovely, undone, unattractive. But his sovereign grace, he makes us new creatures in Christ. And we're born again. He loves us even though we're unlovely. And that same grace reached down and called the Jew the chosen people of God. So there's a natural reason, but there's also a supernatural reason. In the providence and the design of God, those who have been the custodians of the written word have been the people of this race, the Jewish race. Our Bible has come to us through them. God chose them for that. They transmitted the scriptures. Satan hates them because they have used they have been used to give the scriptures and Satan hates the Bible. Satan hates them because they've been used to give the scriptures and because the Lord Jesus Christ after the flesh came from the Jewish people. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 9, verse 4 and 5. Who are Israelites 
to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Certainly because of this, there's a supernatural hatred of the Jews. It seems to be clear in Scripture, and we know that God has chosen them to be His people, His nation. Someone wrote this on a wall. They said, It is odd that God should choose the Jews. A Jew came along and wrote underneath it, God chose, which shows God knew His Jew. And then a Christian came along and wrote beneath that, This Jew spoke true. God knew his Jew as king would bring to earth new birth. Thank God for the Jewish people. God chose them for that purpose. And because of that, they are hated. They are hated by Satan. And as a result, the nations of the world often show their hatred for these people. There also a very subtle form of there is also a very subtle form of anti-Semitism present today. It's to deny that all the promises made to Israel, the nation of Israel, will be fulfilled. Some people say, "Well, they're they're done; they're never going to be fulfilled." No, God is a God of His word, and the promises that He made will be fulfilled. In Jeremiah thirty-one. 35, it says, Thus saith the Lord, which giveth the sun for a light by day, and the ordinance of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, which divideth the sea when the waves thereof roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If those ordinances depart from before me, saith the Lord, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Think about that. God says that if you can blot the sun out of the sky, if you can wipe the moon out of existence, if you can get all the stars out of the sky, then you can get rid of Israel. That's the only way. As long as the sun shines and the moon is in the heavens, God says he's not through with his people. They are his chosen instrument. Had it not been for God's faithfulness to his promises, these people would have been eliminated from the face of the earth at the time of Esther and many times since then. But God is in control and he deals with man to fulfill his purposes for his glory. God is in control. So it's best for us to know and to do God's will. Now, how do we do that? We know God's word and we obey it. You know, anti-Semitism comes from an ignorance of God's word. That's why people hate the Jews. They don't know what God says. Are you interested this morning in God's will? If you've never been saved, God, know that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's ready to save you today if you're willing to receive his gift of salvation. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Christian, are you interested in God's will? 
Romans 12, 2 says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven,